0: Hi everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello.
1: And I'm Nick Rokraut.
0: And today we have the episode that we've all been waiting for. We will be talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer, one of the most historic movie weekends in history, certainly in our lifetimes. It feels so good to see so many people going to movie theaters and to hear from some of my friends who I know never go to the movies but went to the movies this weekend to see a movie Mm -hmm. about Barbie by Greta Gerwig in a three-hour R-rated drama by Christopher Nolan. And I think what I'm happiest to share is that both of these movies are genuinely great.
1: Yeah, there were zero disappointments I was so scared by all of the marketing campaigns being so hyped for so long. We got the Oppenheimer Mm -hmm. clocks like over a year ago. Yeah. (laughs) And you can find Barbie just like out the wazoo. So you just couldn't escape that wherever you went. So I was really scared. But God, I came out of these movies just buzzing. I was so happy. It was such a cultural experience, too. I mean, there were so many people at the theaters. The Lincoln Square IMAX 70mm is booked out for, like, almost another month. It is, like, fully sold out. 10.30 a.m. screening. I am there. Every seat is filled, even the front row. It's like, you just never see this. So, to see people coming out, to see the box office numbers for these movies... As of this morning, Barbie hit 155 million and Oppenheimer hit 80.5, which is just insane. It's the fourth highest weekend in history, and they just totally deserve it being original pieces. The other top weekends were all IP, either Marvel or Star Wars. So there are just so many things to praise from the filmmakers to the cast and crew. Just everything was a five out of five for me.
0: Before we talk about our our experiences seeing Barbie in Oppenheimer, I think we need to spend a little bit of time talking about the news. So our previous two episodes were recorded ahead of the news that SAG was joining the WGA in an historic strike. So both of these unions are striking. They want a fair deal. And the AMPTP... Really just stands in their way. This is an organization that's kind of a conglomerate, an organization of the studios and the streamers. And what's really scary, I think, is we're at a time in history where the streaming bubble is about to burst. You know, it was, I think, fun for them for a while to try to operate like a tech company, but really it has killed the movie industry as we know it. And AI proves to be a continued threat to creativity, to originality, to workers and their rights and their salaries and how they're fairly compensated. So I think all of these things coming together, it is just absolutely necessary for WGA and SAG to be striking. And I am really hopeful that they can get the deal that they want because the last time that SAG and WGA struck together, they ended up getting a, an historic deal right in the 60s. So, while this throws really a wrench into a lot of plans, right? Like when you think about fall festivals, when you think about the Oscars, when you think about everything that we cover, it's like, yes, it's going to be different. We're going to have to cover things and think about things differently. But at the same time, I would also implore everyone like not to focus on that piece of it right now and to focus instead on the fact that people in the industry and below the line workers, they are all being greatly affected by this and they need to be able to do their jobs and be fairly compensated. So I think we will play it by ear with what that means for us and for coverage and what that means for the Oscars and everything else. But for now... I really am just hopeful that they take the time that they need to get the deal that they want and to really, I think, make history because where we're headed now is not working. And for all of this also to just be on top of this historic weekend, it's like clearly people want to go back to the movies and they want to do it for original films, right? Like they, yes, like Barbie is a property that's really well known, but They want something different, and when you hear these stories about, oh, Warner Brothers might push Dune Part Two and The Color Purple, it's like, yes, like we're familiar with Dune and we've seen a version of The Color Purple before, but it's clear that audiences want to go back, so to just see it at its peak right now, and then to have the possibility of studios not learning from that and to want and to just like push it ahead instead of giving writers and actors and everyone the fair deal. It is so, so disheartening.
1: Yeah, we fully support the writers and actors guilds. It's devastating to see some of the comments coming out from execs and also to hear about how long this may take, but I'm hopeful we will stand with them and we'll try to cover things as we can. What also came out this week was that A24 agreed to the SAG writers' demands And then there are these waivers. So maybe you can explain that a little bit more. But it sounds like it could be a studio by studio thing in certain cases. So to see that independent films, smaller films can continue if they agree to these terms, like you're saying, it's what audiences want. They want to get back there. These movies are performing so well. And to potentially see that all go away again, kind of like we did with COVID is Mm -hmm. so disheartening. It's Yes, the Oscars of it all and things being delayed. But it's like, we just want these movies. I don't care about predicting them in whatever category. It's like, I want to see The Color Purple because it's going to be a phenomenon. I want to see Challengers, which is now coming out next year in April now. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's scary. But again, we will stay hopeful and support the writers and the actors, all of the guilds that make these movies what they are.
0: Exactly. And just a quick note on what you mentioned with the waivers. So those waivers are granted to uh, productions that are not linked to companies associated with the AMPTP. So the AMPTP that we mentioned earlier, that's the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. So any production that's granted a waiver is just not associated or linked to that group who you'll hear about and read about as you're learning more about the strike. But if A24 is able to give workers what they need, there's no reason Disney shouldn't be able to do the same, or Warner Brothers, or these major companies who are just just completely greedy and they have no no excuses. So it's it's sad and it's scary, but I'm, again, I, we can only really be hopeful right now.
1: And some of you may be asking, like, why does this matter? Why do they need to delay? And a lot of this is related to the actors cannot promote, do press, do Q&As for any of these struck productions. So Barbie and Oppenheimer both barely made the cut as they both walked off the red carpet in support of these strikes, which, I mean, is lucky that we got what we did from these cast and crew again Because it's just such a moment. But here on out, it's going to be a lot harder. So if Timmy can't go and support Dune and do funny interviews and whatnot with Zendaya again, that does hurt them. I mean, you're still like, okay, the movie's there, I'm going to go. But there's so much in the build up to a release that still matters for box office numbers. So I think it's Mm -hmm. a lot of things that maybe you don't necessarily see, but does affect how these movies come out.
0: Absolutely. So I think that's kind of the perfect transition to talk about Barbie and Oppenheimer, because Barbie really, like you mentioned at the top, was mounted by an aggressive marketing campaign. I mean, it was everywhere. Every single product was suddenly pink, I felt like, and I was just seeing this movie everywhere. But safe to say, it worked for mm-hmm. uh, the box office. So there were a ton of records that were broken that just made me honestly really happy because I'm such a fan of Greta Gerwig that I just want her to succeed. And this was the biggest opening of 2023 so far. And this is the biggest opening ever for a solo female director. So Greta Gerwig, you did Good job, it. Greta. Congratulations, Greta. <laughs> So wrapping Oppenheimer into this, again, just being an R-rated three-hour movie with, I mean, a lot of audiences don't know who Killian Murphy is. I watched Peaky Blinders. You like 28 Days Later. Like, Mm. we know. But we follow this, too. Like, a random person on the street doesn't necessarily, you know, line up to go see a movie because Killian Murphy is in it. Maybe they will now. But it's one of those things where it's just like, it's... Also, a pretty amazing feat that Oppenheimer made that kind of money too. So, I think Barbie made 337 million worldwide, and Oppenheimer made 174 million worldwide already. It's incredible. It's so exciting. And for me, as someone who loves a good prestige drama, I was also really excited that Oppenheimer was doing that well. And just hearing from friends too that. Like they were going to see a three hour movie Mm -hmm. and they weren't waiting until it came on Netflix or wherever and they could pause it. Oh my God. It's just so exciting. I know you did the double on the same day. What was that like?
1: Same day, but I had a little break. So Oppenheimer was at 1030, took a little break, had some Cosmos, pregame for Barbie, and then that was at 4 p.m. So honestly, I think it was the perfect scheduling. Got a little lunch in between to... Because I did not buy the Barbie convertible popcorn holder. I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so I needed a real meal. And yeah, and then afterwards, you have enough time for, again, dinner, going out, whatever. Like it's still early enough. So it really was the perfect day. And I think it was the right order too, because you do want to end on a light note. But like my friends and I, we were like, we want to go see Barbie again. I was like, I would absolutely go back and just sit down and rewatch Barbie. Mm-hmm.
0: After Barbie ended, I thought to myself, I do not know how many times in my lifetime I'm going to watch this movie. I I can't even a high begin number. to say. like It's going to be such a high number.
1: I don't think I'll necessarily say the same about Oppenheimer, but we will get there. How did you do these two movies? Did you do a double or no?
0: So I saw Barbie first and then I didn't see Oppenheimer until the next day. So I had like a 20 I had a 24-hour gap in between them, which I thought was really helpful. I don't know if I could handle this double. I don't know if my tear ducts could handle this double or really just the amount of existential dread that both of these movies fill you with in a way it's kind of odd how similar they end up being in what they're saying, which I think is Mm -hmm. interesting. It's kind of like the follies of man and what happens when men can't properly express their emotions. People get hurt to varying degrees. (laughs) So we'll dig into that more. But I actually think that Barbie first and then Oppenheimer might be the best way to do it, at least for me. You know, originally I thought, Kind of like what you said, and I'm glad that worked for you to do, like, dinner first and then dessert, right? Like, start with Oppenheimer, get the heavy one out of the way first, and then do the lighter one. But I, after I saw Oppenheimer, I really couldn't think about anything else. Like, I had trouble sleeping. And just, like, the, the final scenes of that movie playing over and over in my head, and I was just thinking so much about what it was saying both literally and metaphorically that I just needed that time to sit with the movie. And I feel like if I jumped right into Barbie, I don't know what would happen. I it would It would probably be good to just get that out of my head and jump into something else. But yeah, Barbie is also deceptively emotional. With Greta Gerwig, I think that's kind of her signature stamp that she puts on all of her movies is that there is a lightness to them, there is an ease. And then it pivots into becoming just this very emotional, personal tale about your place in the world. That's what all of her movies do. And yeah, I think I'm happy that I was left at the end of both of these movies just with a lot to think about. So I don't I don't really think you can ask for anything more from film. And watching both of these movies, I just was so happy to be. A person who loves movies. I just felt fed, and I really haven't in the same way, I would say, in a really long time. I haven't been this surprised by movies in a while, outside of like festivals, but that's a different experience altogether. You know, that's Mm -hmm. not, in many ways, that doesn't feel like a real movie going experience.
1: Well, I think it's safe to say whichever one you do first, see them both. They're both worth it. And we'll do as deep of a dive as we can. I need to see these movies over and over, and mm-hmm. yeah, let's just get into it. No,
0: yeah, let's let's dive in, and I think that's a, that's a good place also to say that we will be getting into spoilers for both of these movies. That's part of the reason why we also wanted to push this episode a week so everyone would have time to see them, so we can get into some of the deeper themes and some of the scenes that are present maybe later in the runtimes of the films. Do you want to start with Barbie or Oppenheimer? Where do we start? I know Barbie's first in the outline, but... <laughs> which one do we want to start with
1: i was kind of surprised we were going to start with barbie but since you liked the other order it doesn't matter
0: let's start with oppenheimer <laughs> let's let's flip it let's start with oppenheimer
1: <laughs> okay amazing so oppenheimer description here during world war ii lieutenant general leslie groves jr appoints physicist j robert oppenheimer to work on the top secret manhattan project Oppenheimer and a team of scientists spend years developing and designing the atomic bomb. Their work comes to fruition on July 16, 1945, as they witnessed the world's first nuclear explosion, forever changing the course of history. This was directed by Christopher Nolan, and it's based on the biography American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. It stars Cillian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Florence Pugh, Robert Downey Jr., and many, many, many more. So I think just starting on the fact that this is a Christopher Nolan-made biopic based on a massive novel, an epic novel on this man who really did forever change the course of history, I think it's nothing that I ever would have expected Christopher Nolan to make, but also feels like the culmination of his entire career in one movie. Mm-hmm. You get to see bits of Inception and the way he plays with time like in Dunkirk and even like the turn and the prestige and interstellar, the grandness and the visuals. It's like there are so many little bits and pieces and they're not even Easter eggs of what he's made before. It just made me so happy. I mean, those initial few moments, you get like a booming score. You get all of these visual effects happening. You have the explosion. You have the quote about Prometheus giving fire to man and really how that is going to foreshadow everything you see in this movie. And then it's just it's a constant ticking the entire time. I mean, even my mom was surprised on how well edited and well paced it was. So it is amazing to see that audiences are willing to sit through a three hour movie like this. And I think Nolan does have a part in that. But We've also talked about runtime in the past and how that can deter viewers, but really it's not an issue. And I think it runs so fluidly. It's an incredible viewing experience. I guess starting in such a grand way, I'm finally happy you found your Nolan film that you like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's true.
1: And I think a big part of that is Killian Murphy. I mean, this is their sixth film together which is crazy. I'm like six movies. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. But yeah, from Scarecrow and Batman Begins and every I mean even Inception. It's like he yeah. has had roles in so many of Nolan's filmography and he's finally in a leading performance where he just absolutely soars and is so magnetic. So, I guess what did you like? I'm sure it's the acting and you could connect here more so than in other of his, you know, space-ish films. <laughs> But yeah, what did you like about Oppenheimer?
0: I was mesmerized by Oppenheimer. Yes, I found my Christopher Nolan film. I, For me, this is far and away his best film, because like you said, it is the culmination of everything that he's done previously, but for me, in a smarter, sharper way. And some of my quibbles I have with Christopher Nolan still persist. We can get into some of those, but... They're very minor in comparison, I would say, to how critical I can be of some of his other films. I do like a lot of his other films, just to be clear. But he's never really been, I think, one of my go-to filmmakers. But here, as this film was starting, I just knew instantly that it was going to be a movie for me. And I tend to not really like biopics that are told in a very straightforward dull way that are Wikipedia cradle to grave. This instead, I thought was a very compelling portrait of a flawed person. And it doesn't spend its time in places where it doesn't need to. And that's a trap that I think a lot of biopics fall into. This instead felt very much like a look at a time, a look at a type of individual, but more importantly, a look at the consequences that come from a particular way of thinking even. That has to do more with American exceptionalism and the military and those themes that come up later. But I felt that the way that it addressed his ties to communism were fascinating. I loved the way that this film opens. I mean, If I see anyone in a classroom, I am instantly in. Like, I just, I needed that. That was just a perfect way to start to see his, his early days in England. And having read American Prometheus, I think this is a stunning adaptation and also Christopher Nolan's best screenplay to date. I think that the way that he plays with structure and theme is really smart and really taps into the core of that book. And, you know, I think too, like biographies, this is a 700 page Pulitzer Prize winning biography. It's a, a big source material to take on, but I think that Nolan does it in a, it's in a really beautiful way and he doesn't lose himself in that process. So other things that are signature to him that, you know, maybe didn't work for me before, like his reliance on exposition or weird ways to play with time and also commentary on, An American family dynamic at the same time just never really worked. And here, the way that he plays with time passing and the importance of time, it feels actually critical, I think, to that moment in history and also in the idea of legacy. I feel like that's something that he's also really fascinated by, but hasn't really gotten into in as much depth as he does here. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. It really was. It was one of those things where when I was watching it, I thought to myself, this isn't Lawrence of Arabia, but it might be the Lawrence of Arabia of our time. It had that kind of feel of looking at this flawed man through a, a really unique point of view and perspective and how he is then remembered. It's yeah, it w- and just stunning visuals, of course, as most Nolan films have. I think he he doesn't, you know, sacrifice those things for this. He just he makes them more sophisticated. And I think maybe because this is his most sophisticated film, it's also my favorite of his, but yeah, I loved Oppenheimer. I've already seen it twice. I'm surely going to go again. I I think it's great.
1: In the beginning, I thought we were getting this like Dunkirkian Structure because we have the three different time periods there, how time is being played with, really. And here he starts the movie with fission and fusion, and I thought it was like a Mm -hmm. black and white past, color present kind of thing. But then as the movie goes on, these time periods start to weave within one another, and the black and white scenes, you start getting color versions of them, and it's like, oh, my God how is he fitting this all together? So I think multiple viewings would help with that. But the other part of it is that there are like three movies in this one movie. Mm -hmm. You have the building of the bomb. You get to know who Oppenheimer is. And then after that, I thought we were like nearing the end when the bomb goes off, when they do the test. And that wasn't the case. We probably had another 45 minutes to an hour after that. And it just becomes a totally different movie and by no means is that bad at all because you get to focus on other characters that are really important to his story mm-hmm. mainly the Robert Downey Jr character Louis Strauss who again i i didn't read the book i don't know who any of these people are just just to see einstein there was like so amazing and to hear Bohr's name <laughs> <laughs> i think tom conti did a great job we can talk more about him. But as you get to actually know these characters, I feel like it is an incredible Nolan feat for us to know who they are and how they are so important to one another. So the second movie, in a way, becomes about Louis Strauss and how really he turned on Oppenheimer and then everyone turned on him. And Remy Malek's David Hill becomes a really important player At this moment. And then in the final bit of the film, we really get to see Oppenheimer's mind and how it works, and to see the repercussions of his actions and how the government used him to not only take over the atomic bomb, there's also this whole bit with Edward Teller and the H bomb, which also is a big part. But it's really this final moment of humanizing Oppenheimer, what he wanted to do to protect the people from this new invention. And I love how Nolan and Hoyte van Hoytema, the cinematographer, how they play with light and sound and getting into Oppenheimer's mind. You have like these flashes of these burnt bodies and the whole scene where he's giving that speech. And again, everything's so dissonant. I was totally blown away. I was awestruck at what I was watching and hearing because you really got to feel the humanity behind him, even if Killian is so stone faced the entire time. He's not necessarily yeah. cold, but he's not very emotional. So, using film to augment everything at once, I think, was just the best way to capture this material.
0: I'm also happy we found a period film that you really like. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I think, you know, one of the things I love about the beginning of this film when you see him. At Cambridge, when he's in England, they don't incorporate a lot of the horrific things that you find out about him in the book, um, about how hard of a time he had and how everything was really, really difficult for him growing up, and figuring out how to use his brain. But they don't need to put everything in; they put the best possible detail in, which is the poison apple which is absolutely incredible. I'm so happy they put that detail in because that was one of the things that really stood out to me when I read the book that, again, is something that Nolan brings into the script, which is that this, in this story, right, like a a poison apple, right, it connects it to the Bible. It connects it to deeper fairy tales and mythologies to connect it to these stories from all different points in time, shows how significant the story is as a whole, but it's also just a fascinating detail, right? So, like, when did his obsession with death start? When did he start to play with things like that? Because his mind just couldn't exist in the world that he knew. And I think visually what Hoyte Van Hoytema does and what Nolan does in incorporating these little flashes of, you know, these particles and this light when... Oppenheimer is thinking, it shows the burden of living with a brain like that. When you're just that brilliant, he ends up getting to a place where he's around people who are just as smart as he is, just as brilliant as he is, but he doesn't start out that way, right? He's this guy who just is seeing things in a completely different way, and we get to feel the burden of that. And I love the shot of the water at the beginning the ripple effects of the rain Mm -hmm. because it shows you on a small scale what ripple effects do. And later in the film, we learn how ripple effects work for someone's life when they make a decision that ultimately becomes catastrophic and they have to deal with those consequences mentally. So I loved that little thematic tie in. I think the way that Nolan uses theme in the movie is really smart. And yeah, Killian in that scene, I mean, he's the perfect person I think to carry a movie like this. I think he's fascinating. And it was one of those performances where I thought to myself at the beginning, oh, I'm I'm feeling connections to Tar and how mm-hmm. I felt watching Kate Blanchett last year in that role. But yeah, I think the way that they set up his early life is really important, too. They don't spell too much out. They leave a lot up to the viewer's imagination in introducing these key players who are going to positively or negatively affect him later in his life, like Chevalier, like Jean Tatlock, for instance, the Florence Pugh character. We definitely need to talk about her, and her portrayal in the movie, which is something, and his his introduction to communism. I think on the second viewing. It becomes clearer through these different timelines that you brought up of the, the fission and the fusion. Um, so the black and white and the color and how that comes up. So, yeah, it's definitely one I think that's benefited from a second viewing. Because then you can kind of, you know what to prepare for and you can spot the connections a bit more easily. But I was really impressed by the fact that I didn't find this movie to be confusing. Even though it's connecting all these different timelines and stories and perspectives, I thought it was fairly clear, which I think is a really impressive thing to do. I didn't feel like it was bogged down by the the difficult science or by trying to weave too many things together. I felt that it was remarkably clear for what it was trying to do.
1: And I think just incorporating all of those things into one piece and doing it in a way that you can understand everything is also another feat because, you know, you can show the math and quantum physics, not many people really understand that. Like him writing that on the chalkboard and the papers that they're talking about that they're publishing together and trying to get at the science and Mm -hmm. the uranium, the plutonium and splitting the nucleus and all the neutrons and using that in visuals to kind of show what A chain reaction could look like you know doing this in a way that is one scientifically correct but something that all audiences can understand too is I think a really hard thing to do and this is all again based on that book so you want it to be factual too you don't want people to be upset that you know they're straying from the material I mean all I can think about is blonde from last year (laughs) oh no And that adaptation Not that. (laughs) I mean, we can talk about his portrayal of the female characters, which I thought were a little thin and not exactly fleshed out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love Emily Blunt, but Mm -hmm. 90% of her lines are, go and fight, you know, stand up for yourself. And then her final moment Mm -hmm. is like a real punch to the gut, and I loved it. And Florence Pugh is kind of this helpless mistress and also depressed, but she hates flowers. Like, there really isn't much there. So I I like their portrayals, but I just don't think they had as much to work with as other actors in the movie did.
0: Yeah, I think, let's talk about the female characters for a second. Um, So Emily Blunt plays Kitty Oppenheimer, who is Robert Oppenheimer's wife, and Florence Pugh plays Jean Tatlock, who Oppenheimer has this affair, relationship with, that's seemingly entirely sexual in nature. And Florence Pugh, her scenes are, I would say she's she's naked for 80% or more of her scenes in this movie. And Kitty, the way that she's characterized as someone who is really struggling with being a mom. She drinks a lot. Like you said, she just is kind of there encouraging them to fight and for Oppenheimer not to be walked all over and one of the first things that we learn about Kitty is that she's a biologist so she clearly like she has this other life like she's a really interesting person she's married multiple times before she turns 30 she comes from old money like we we learn little bits and pieces about her but it seems like the things that Nolan is interested in in focusing on are parts of her character that kind of reduce her to a stereotype of this drunk woman struggling with being a new mom or being kind of, we don't know a lot about her character until that final scene, which I think is fantastic. I love that scene. I love seeing her yell at Jason Clark in this kangaroo court that is created to just set Oppenheimer up for failure from Lewis Strauss. So I think that, There are two things that can be true, right? And there's, of course, a lot of discussion around the female characters, and some of it is absolutely fair, and other parts of it are extremely bad faith comments. So I think there's a fine line there. Um, I do want to read from Adam Naiman's review. I think he has a really funny and accurate point about Nolan and female characters where he says, for a guy whose famously elaborate and self-indulgent movies are produced by his wife, he's weirdly determined to become the auteur equivalent of Henry VIII, ritually sacrificing spouses on the altar of alpha male character development.
1: And that's how it's always been. Yeah. I mean, we should be faulting it a lot more, but it's... In a way, kind of what I expect, where, and maybe not just the female characters, but generally, I mean, I feel like, and you've commented on this too, of like not connecting with his characters. And yeah. that being a sore spot in his movie going, in his screenwriting, that I kind of overlook because of the spectacle of it all. But I think it balances out here better than he has before.
0: I agree. I think that it does balance out more here, you know, it's, and at the same time though, like the other side to the coin is that this screenplay, any of the scenes that you're seeing in color are written in first person point of view for Robert Oppenheimer. So if Robert Oppenheimer sees Gene Tatlock in a solely sexual manner, that is an indictment on him as a character, right? Like, yes, it's still thin writing from Nolan, sure, but it's also his perspective. It's difficult, I think, because these characters are based on on real women who are very different than how they're portrayed in the movie. If you look to other books or other historical documents, right? Like, Jean Tatlock was basically hunted down by the FBI for being a communist. She struggled with her identity as a bisexual woman at the time. That was where a lot of her depression stemmed from. And this movie doesn't get into that. But also, it's Oppenheimer's perspective, so if that's not how he thought of her, right? If if we're seeing the projections of who he thought Jean Tatlock was, it's almost worse for him that he sees this woman as just a person he has sex with. Like, that's a more interesting conversation, I think, to have than the more limited conversation of these women were portrayed badly, this is a problem with Nolan. I do think it's still a problem with Nolan but I think it's more of a problem with how Oppenheimer views women than how Nolan is writing them, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does. I feel like there would have been a better way for him to have said that, though, too. Not necessarily said, but showed or whatnot, because you don't get any of that about Jean in the movie. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. There's a shot, too, that's interesting of um, this black glove near Jean's head. She's like, trying to die by suicide where you think like, oh, is this, you know, government interference? I actually interpreted that though as Oppenheimer seeing his own hand in her death, right? Like he's mm-hmm. blaming himself. He is looking at his own guilt in that situation. And he's not necessarily picturing outside forces influencing her death other than him. Again, though, this guy is a is a person who, as we see through the script, is Thinking a lot about himself, especially when it comes to women. And it's little things like that that you, I think, pick up on when you watch it a second time that make you think a little bit more about little details that Nolan chose to incorporate or like little glances that Killian Murphy includes as Oppenheimer that make it a really rich text. I do have to say, though, the sex scene with Gene, I laughed very hard and I know it was supposed to be serious and this like prestige drama moment but him reading sanskrit while she's on top of him and him saying and now i am become death the destroyer yeah. of worlds <laughs> it just took me to another planet i do and don't want to get into nolan's brain and figure out why he thought that was <laughs> that was the best way to
1: <laughs> quote that line yeah
0: it was like funny in an in an eye roll kind of way
1: yeah i mean it was very dramatic and i think based on hearing that there were going to be sex scenes and it was rated R and there's nudity I was expecting a lot worse or more graphic Mm -hmm. but it was fairly tame and simple in the way that we're talking about the characters too and like how he did that I will say I was not expecting that quote to be read at that time though
0: it'll come up later in Smasher Pass maybe
1: yeah I'm saving my other Naked moment of him and them until then. (laughs) But I guess, like, how he captures that moment and the angle, like, how the camera is shooting Killian, Mm -hmm. I think we can kind of get into certain elements of the movie because a lot of this can be broken down into its crafts and its parts, which I think equals so much more as a whole. But let's get started with sound and editing, since those do relate at the Oscars to film editing and our combined sound category. Again, this is effortless. I've talked about a couple of points here. I mean, from the very beginning. And I think the big moment that everyone was waiting for was the explosion. And that did not play out how I expected that to. I expected to be blown away out of the movie theater in that moment. And it is very much the opposite for a few seconds. Mm
0: -hmm. I think that the Trinity test moment in the movie is really maybe the most thrilling thing in a movie I've seen this year so far in just the build up to it. So I think you're you're so invested in these scientists and how they're they're working together in this secret lab at Los Alamos and how they don't know if this is going to work. And we know based on history that it's going to work, but still Nolan succeeds in achieving this great sense of suspense throughout the film and up to that point where even though you know it's going to work in the moment you're anxious that it's not going to somehow and i think that you know just up to the countdown with josh peck of drake and josh pushing that button my theater laughed when he appeared it was very Uh funny i heard someone out loud saying is that josh peck (laughs) To the conversation that we have between Oppenheimer and Groves about the near zero chance that this bomb could, this test really could set off a chain reaction that destroys the world. like You really are anxious as they're all awaiting it. And I agree with you, like in this moment, I fully expected it to just be this overwhelming wall of sound And by choosing to cut it out and just show the visuals and then to hear Killian Murphy in what I actually thought was a perfect vocal delivery of that line. It is so creepy. Like he sounds so into himself and almost like he's ruminating on it, but he's a God or something at the same time when he says that. And now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And then it's, boom sound, like a blowout. And it Mm. isn't all at once either. It comes in waves. So there's like one big boom and then it pauses and then you see another reaction and then it booms again for those people watching in the frame. It's really interesting how he layers it there.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the breathiness of the explosion, just hearing Oppenheimer breathe and watch and you have the different lights happening, you have like the initial white out and then it turns more orange. I mean, and then you get to see the actual explosion and the fact that Nolan doesn't use any CGI, I think makes this movie just all the better. But mm-hmm. you see the plumes of smoke and fire and you can even see like little bits where it's kind of those like neurons. And then all the reactions from the crowd and how they have to turn around, After the initial light so that they don't get blinded. But I think even before that, like once this worked and the government took the bombs and blew up Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I had no idea like how far in advance this test was. So I thought, you know, when Grove says, if this doesn't work, we've wasted $2 billion. I was like, holy crap, everything is on the line. And you know maybe they had like five tests so i didn't know it was going to happen so i think the intensity there is spot on i felt every second counting down and, and josh peck on like i don't know what <laughs> he was like you need to press the button and abort if it goes below like i'm like i don't know what any of that means mm-hmm. but you can still feel all of that tension building as the clock mm-hmm. is ticking down
0: yeah it's the moment you wait for in the movie. When I was watching it too, I was just filled with so much horror, right? Because you yourself suddenly feel the same sense of wonder watching this that they do after having created it, even though this is what goes on to kill thousands and thousands of people. And it's just like a, a moment where you sit with yourself too and you think like, oh my God, like I shouldn't be feeling this way. I should be feeling completely horrified and you do, but there is that sense of awe just because of the, the images and the sound design there. I think again, like while we're talking about editing, Jennifer Lame, who edited this film, she also did Tenant, She did Hereditary, Marriage Story. She's someone we've talked about, I think quite a bit throughout our episodes, but I mean phenomenal job on this movie Mm -hmm. weaving together the multiple perspectives of this story I think is just it's it's really incredible work and I hope that she's recognized for it this year because it had to be I think the hardest task and I know Nolan told her it would be a really really difficult task but I think she did an amazing job what did you think of the sound mix? I know people are critical of that with Nolan films. Did you have trouble hearing anything?
1: I did want subtitles at times. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And I don't think that was because of anyone's accent. There were certain moments where either the sound would swell or the score would swell. And it really would kind of take out the actor's voices a little. So I just had to be like really tuned in. But it wasn't like, Dark Knight Rises kind of distracting or, like, some of those earlier problems. I think it was pretty manageable overall.
0: That's. I felt the same way. This was not, like, Tenant, Dark Knight Rises. Like, it is a problem that comes up, I think, when people critique his movies. Mm-hmm. I really didn't have too much of a problem here with it. It was, though, like you mentioned... Sometimes like the score would get really really loud and it would just he would crank it up to an 11 and I could not hear what anyone else in the room was saying. So there's a moment when it happens Oppenheimer is, you know, on trial in that conference room and I was trying desperately to hear what he was saying and what the other characters in the room were saying, but Nolan and the sound team create this effect where Oppenheimer is so overwhelmed by what's going on that things are kind of drowned out and everything else gets louder and you can't hear that. So I understand like the design choice. It just wasn't always working for me because I wanted to hear what those characters were saying because this movie's incredibly talky. And because of that, if you feel like you miss one thing, you could be suddenly lost, right? Or. You could fall off Mm -hmm. in terms of your focus. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a signature Nolan trademark, though. He just he loves a loud, loud score and he really cranks it up throughout the movie. So I could have used less of that. I think at times during the movie, I like a little stillness, but I also love the score.
1: Thankfully, he chooses a lot of those loud moments when we have these sprawling vistas that we're looking at, especially in this IMAX 70 millimeter format. My jaw was on the floor. All of those moments because it's this huge frame and you just see for miles and miles of New Mexico, of certain universities when they're visiting. It's so spectacular to look at. But yeah, one of the moments leading up to my viewing I was like oh my god the score I'm ready I haven't heard a single note from it yet and again we didn't have Hans Zimmer because he was working on Dune Part Mm 2 so again Ludwig Goranson he previously worked with Nolan on Tenet and he's won for Black Panther at the Oscars so I was so looking forward to more of that Tenet and I think it's pretty dialed down We get more of a lyrical Garanson this time around, but we still also have those noteworthy Nolan blasts and blaring and just listening to Garanson talk about Tenet again and the trucks. Like, we still get all those similar sounds that I think transported me to where I wanted to go. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you and I also liked Tenet more than most people.
1: (laughs) I love Tenet so much. Like, I just want to go watch that now.
0: (laughs) I love the score. I think the score is just so, so wonderful. I love the first track, Fission, because it starts out really beautifully, and then the track sours, and it actually sounds really, really similar to Johnny Greenwood's score for There Will Be Blood. He does something similar with the strings in that, where it suddenly just becomes more sinister, Mm -hmm. and it also reminded me a lot of The Shining.
1: Those are all great. Yeah, horror elements playing in with drama and I wouldn't really say lighthearted, but I think it's a good mix. Moving on to cinematography, I mentioned Hoyte van Hoytema, again a frequent collaborator with Nolan. He also shot Nope last year. I think this is another really great achievement from this movie. We have so many close-ups, which a was a big talking mm-hmm. point for IMAX which is usually used in big action sequences, but we really just get lots and lots of close-ups of these characters, which I think puts you right in there and makes you feel what they're feeling, which is important for a movie like this, where it can feel grand, but it can also feel very small. I think it mixes those two qualities really well together too.
0: Yeah, I love his work, and I think that here it is just so beautiful like I love the blues and the grays of his school days mixed with the like warmer tones that are present in the rooms where he's discussing communism like earlier in the film and then I think just the the shots of the land I really am a sucker for any of those pictures of the American West they always work for me in films just like Ari Wegner doing the power of the dog. Mm -hmm. But I think this is some of his finest work. It really is. And like you mentioned the close-ups, I think he really also understands character and how to capture Oppenheimer's inner turmoil in contrast to the vastness of the outside world and the places that his actions affect. And again, also just the use of color and black and white.
1: And Kodak had to make black and white film stock, like this is a new thing for this movie, so that it could have the same appearance as the rest of the film. So I think that's also another great accomplishment. And I mean, you can see it, the black and white sequences are also stunning. in the way they capture the characters and the depth, the design of all of the sets are just magnificent.
0: Yeah. And I think just speaking of sets, like thinking of some of the other crafts here, the production design, building up... Los Alamos and that community there, also, you know, recreating and decorating a lot of those sets with period correct details and props. I felt like it was a very, very lived in world, and I, I thought that the, the crafts there were great. And Ruth DeJong is the production designer. She also did, There Will Be Blood, another connection to mm-hmm. that movie, which is also Nolan's favorite PTA. But she worked on that film in the art department and was the production designer for Nope last year. And then also, I thought the costumes, they were so inspiring to me.
1: All the sweaters.
0: How do I get more tweed, get more gray? There was one jacket and one sweater that Emily Blunt wore. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that would look great. I need to wear that. And then I think makeup and hair, too. They do a really good job of... Aging and de-aging Oppenheimer in particular, I think with his hair and just with aging makeup throughout the film. I mean, Kelly mm-hmm. Murphy has like per has perfect skin, but yeah, I thought that the hair and makeup in the movie was good too. Some of the aging near the end was a little much, I think, but that was probably also the intended effect. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think the latest scenes for me, I don't know if that was prosthetic work too, but that was like a little too noticeable, but. I loved how, again, like the editing played with the makeup and hairstyling because we see Oppenheimer have more grays at one point. So then you know that that trial, the appeal, is years into the future. So you can kind of start to put the puzzle pieces together at that point, which is something that helps you clue into Nolan's filmmaking. Talking about the script, massive undertaking, talking about the communism parts of his life and how that folds into the narrative and comes back in the end and how the government uses that against him the scene when borden is reading this classified letter and oppenheimer's lawyer lloyd garrison just goes and sits next to him and says like you're not winning this that moment mm-hmm. is so devastating but again it's such a concentrated layered script that there's so many Different things that I would love to get clarity on on another viewing. And I'm sure reading the book helped, but were there a lot of differences with the the book and being adapted?
0: Honestly, I think it's a really strong adaptation of the book. When you're adapting a 700 page book into three hours, like a lot gets left, I would say, on the cutting room floor. But I thought that the interpretation of the text was really smart and. I think it incorporated a lot of what I wanted in terms of feeling. So in how the characters felt about particular things and the detail that's present in the book, I think is also present in the film. So that really worked for me. I've heard some complaints that people love the first two hours and don't like the third hour or find like the third hour really boring and it becomes... Almost like a courtroom drama for the last hour Mm. as it intercuts between Oppenheimer and that fake trial they construct for him just to take away his security clearance and act like he's an agent of the Soviet Union and Strauss's confirmation hearing. I loved this section of the movie, especially because after the Trinity test happens and it's like, oh, that's what you've been waiting for. What else is coming? That section of the movie, to me, was just so interesting in looking at these two characters as foils to each other, yes, but also kind of like a Salieri-Amadeus pair. Mm. Someone who has all of this brain power, who is the genius, who the other one could never be, and he's just so bogged down by his own narcissism and vindictiveness that he can't see that it's not all about him. I thought that that was fascinating character study in the last hour. And again, like the way that I think Nolan deals with characters sometimes is fairly weak, but I thought it was really strong in the last, last hour of the movie and really kept my attention. And I thought he did a great job wrapping it all up. I also thought it was really important in how we see the fear and the moral conundrum that Oppenheimer has After the bomb is taken away, that was something I never expected from this movie is, you know, after they do the Trinity test, they're on this high, not really thinking about what it means. And there are two key moments for me before a big scene, but two key moments for me where I really saw, okay, Nolan is thinking about this in a way that is different and really smart where he understands like the horror behind this and maybe a personal way for Oppenheimer. One is where we see the scene of the men deciding which Japanese cities they're going to drop the bomb on. Horrifying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely horrifying. And the one guy is like, oh, I took Kyoto off because of its cultural significance to the Japanese people, but also my wife and I had our honeymoon there. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, such a gut punch. And then um, the moment where Oppenheimer Mm -hmm. sees the bomb being taken away by the military and it's, it's almost like a an extension of himself is being taken away. It's like this thing that he worked on and he feels like was his and that he understood, right? He understands the science behind it. He supervised these people in building it. And suddenly it's not under his control anymore. And it's almost like he never thought about that until that particular moment. And you think, how would you not think about that, right? How would you not think about the catastrophic consequences of your own creation but it feels like he didn't until it's being taken away and in the military's hands and you see you see those scenes of him waiting right like up at night listening to the radio trying to figure out you know like has the bomb been dropped and when those scenes start happening you realize that he really screwed up in a in a serious way right he harnessed all of that power and destroyed so many people's lives and affected history for the worse forever.
1: But the other side to all of that is that it's an arms race. Russia's in this, they're trying to get ahead of the other countries that have already made strides to this. And there's a quote about how they wish they had it sooner so they could use it on Hitler and the Germans. But yeah, it's like, I don't think as a viewer, you're really thinking about that either, because you just are rooting for him to succeed. And then once it happens, Mm -hmm. you and he step back and look at what has happened. And when the government tells him like, oh no, we got it from here. Like, you're okay, you're done. We're done with you. They used him, they got what they wanted. And now he is bearing the guilt. I mean, fast forward to later in the film when you see Truman, Gary Oldman as Truman. And he said, no, I did it. No one cares about who made it. It's who dropped it. And that's not necessarily to take the the guilt off of Oppenheimer's shoulders. It's more of like, get this crybaby out of my office, which is A awful, real thing that was said. Oh my god, that's insane. Um, I think there's just the right amount of comedy in this movie too, which Nolan plays with. But yeah, it's. Fa- I think the final bit is fascinating. I definitely wouldn't say I liked it less. I think it's way more dense than the first part. So I think that's something that needs to be broken down a little bit further, but Mm -hmm. no, I loved, I loved that last, I would say second and third act.
0: Yeah. I think what's fascinating is this movie in that scene again, where the bomb is being taken away and like you were talking about the arms race, it's about a person's ability to hurt other people, right? From afar and how they, you know, because... These scientists were so removed, right, from the Germans or from the Japanese people who who Truman dropped the bomb on. They were able, I think, to distance themselves from the consequences of what they were doing. And then when it happened and Oppenheimer at that rally was able to see and visualize the horror, that's what this movie is showing, right? It's choosing to show... The internal perspective of a character. It's not a three-dimensional omniscient view of what's happening in the war. It's showing its effect on one person. And in Oppenheimer's trial, there's a really telling moment for me that just like sunk in when Jason Clark's character, who he's great at playing this like cartoonish villain almost, is this lawyer attacking him, when he's interrogating him on when he established moral conviction about the bomb being dropped and how it came for him later and I think that that kind of tells you everything you need to know about this character which is that he was able to see what his own hubris and power and brilliance was able to do but not in the way that it hurt people until it was too late
1: I will say my favorite line in the movie is the rats down wear the martinis from kitty (laughs) best best line delivery too i like emily blunt we've talked about her in florence a little bit there's just not as much there we talked about matt damon a little bit as leslie grows i think matt damon is so damn good in this movie he's wow. funny he's charismatic he's like in a special era and i love what we've gotten from him recently this and air namely from this year but i think he's great
0: it's a very layered performance for what could be a very one-dimensional, one-note character, right? Is this kind of, like, military, hard-ass antagonist at times, right? But I don't know. He brings a lot to that character. I think in terms of supporting performances, I did love Emily Blunt. I think she does a lot with a little here. I don't think this character is particularly well-written at all, but I think that what she does in that, in her big scene... When she has to, you know, talk about whether or not she was a communist and she's just going back at him. My theater was clapping for her. I don't know. This cast is just stacked, though. It's humongous. Benny Safdie, Alden Ehrenreich, I thought he was great. But I really do think there's a reason why people, in terms of supporting performances, are singling out Robert Downey Jr. as straws. We just haven't gotten anything from Robert Downey Jr. like this in so long because he was Iron Man and he was in the Dr. Doolittle movie and he was in Sherlock Holmes. And I don't know. He hasn't been in movies like this Mm -hmm. in a really long time where he's been able to show off how good of an actor he can be. And he's wicked as Strauss. And he has, he's so self-absorbed and there's a weird little detail that he includes. And I was fascinated by on both viewings, that feels so right to this character. But he is about to take a drink of something, and he like mm-hmm. rolls like Over the glass lip. around his I lips. It was so it. <laughs> like such a detail for that character. Where I was like, "Whoa, you mm-hmm. you get him." It's just those little things like that. Where I am sure that wasn't a direction, but this is Killian Murphy's movie through and through.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's am- amazing. Just the whole movie, I was just in awe of what he was doing.
1: Yeah, chilling in a way as well. I think he has just such a precision with how he captures Oppenheimer. Adding the sense of mystery, but also depth and detail and humanity and emotion to a character that I didn't know. I had never put a face Mm -hmm. to, so I think he did a great job in realizing this person, this juggernaut, this genius of a man. And yeah, we'll mention a few more later on. We will be playing Smasher Pass, so There are some names, like you said, this cast is just like hundreds and hundreds of famous people and like Josh Hartnett.
0: When I saw Josh Hartnett appear, I was taken back to my teens. I gasped.
1: I was like, oh my God, he is Mm -hmm. in this. Wow.
0: More on him later. Yeah. (laughs) And then lastly, I think just Nolan's direction. For me, this is the directorial achievement of his career. I think like we mentioned earlier, it combines everything that he loves, but in a stronger way than in any of his earlier films for me. And, you know, I still love The Prestige. I really liked Dunkirk a lot. I, despite its flaws, had a lot of fun with Tenet, The Dark Knight. Like there, you know, there are a lot of his movies that I do, I do like, but this one just felt like it was operating on another level altogether.
1: I think his direction has always been strong. I think in his composition, there's always so much happening. And I think he directs it and compiles it in such a beautiful way I mean during the movie I was like why don't I ever say he's one of my favorite directors it's like Stanley Kubrick or like he used to be Wes Anderson and Christopher (laughs) Nolan delivers for me almost every time like whether you like it or not I think you're fascinated by his mind and how he functions I was so happy with this movie and yeah again there are just so many layers that He folds together so well. And I think he is definitely Mm -hmm. the big player in how all of that came together.
0: Yeah. And I think with Nolan, you know, there's something that comes with it. Sometimes, you know, people talk about Nolan's fans and how aggressive they are and how opinionated they are and everything like that. But a director is not their fans, right? Like, he's not that group of individuals who log on to Reddit and need to post a million theories about his movies or talk about why he's better than XYZ director. I think though, like he is one of the signature directors of our time, right? Like we grew up with these movies. They came out like when we were in high school and when we were in college and when we were starting to like figure out our identities as cinephiles and filmgoers. So I feel like for most people our age, like whether or not he's one of your favorite directors or not, like he isn't really important filmmaker of the era for sure.
1: Okay then just thinking about Oscar potential we've talked about a lot of categories that I think it really may all show up in and I know like the rest of the year is very much in flux so I have no idea but I think this has the potential to do very well at the Oscars at least nomination wise. If Dunkirk was getting nominated for director I think that could very much happen again for him for picture And down the line in adapted screenplay, definitely Killian Murphy. Honestly, he's like number one for me for best actor right now. Just far and away. You mentioned Tara, and I had the same idea. I don't know what shot specifically, but I was like, am I watching Tara again? Just like the (laughs) moments of awe watching these actors perform. Mm -hmm. And there's very much a parallel there. So I hope he shows up. I think RDJ could show up. I don't necessarily know about anybody else. Those are the strongest, most baity performances, I would say. And then Nolan Films have been nominated for sound before, and I would love to see cinematography, also editing. I think it's a wonderful technical achievement that, yeah, could play very well. Do you have any categories that you would like really like to see get in that maybe you wouldn't expect for a Nolan movie?
0: Well, I think in terms of what to not expect for a Nolan movie, I mean, if we think about it, in his entire filmography, only one performance has ever been nominated. Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight. And he went on to win, but there was a lot wrapped up in that performance, right? And in that win being a posthumous win, an award. So Nolan is not known for getting actors nominated, right? There's one instance of it. And here, I think we could see multiple people getting in. Killian is also my front runner right now. Like He's who I would vote for of the movies I've seen this year. In actor, I think Robert Downey Jr. I think he's a possibility. It's going to be funny this year when supporting actor could be coming down to Robert De Niro and Robert Downey Jr. (laughs) It's going to be funny when the announcements happen. But yeah, I think in terms of performance too, we could see Emily Blunt getting her first nomination. That could be a big deal. And then of course, Crafts up and down. I think this movie really has the potential to be a big player, and the box office is just going to help that. Mm-hmm. It's going to be one of the biggest movies of the year.
1: Okay, and if you can give this movie one Oscar, what would it be?
0: So I'm I'm tempted to say Killian Murphy because I love the performance and I feel like it's his movie in a lot of ways. But I have to go with Nolan for director. I feel like it's like a record scratch, like in Barbie. Did I just say that? <laughs> <laughs> Did I just give Nolan my oh Oscar? My God. But I think this is his best movie. And I think everything comes together in a way that is just really impressive and, you know, made it a movie that really worked for me and is one of my favorites of the year so far. What about you?
1: Well, I'm tempted to give it to Nolan, but I have to think about my Barbie answer because I don't want to repeat. So I think just in case, just in case, I'm going to go with Killian, who also deserves it. I would give it to both of them. But yeah, everything he does for this character, I can't wait to go see it again, just to break down more of what he's doing with Oppenheimer and how he's portraying him. But yeah, from him like cowering in the woods after he hears about Gene's death to him standing, giving the speech with like the buzzing background and kind of him getting flashes of what he's done and feeling the guilt I think it's all really phenomenal work and just like other people other members of this film I hope he gets acknowledged and recognized later this year
0: I hope he wins honestly that made me <laughs> want to change my answer okay let's move on to Barbie description here Barbie and Ken are having the time of their lives in the colorful and seemingly perfect world of Barbieland. However, when they get a chance to go to the real world, they soon discover the joys and perils of living among humans. This was directed by Greta Gerwig, and it was written by Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. It stars Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, America Ferreira, Issa Rae, Michael Sarah, Will Ferrell, and more. I loved it. I had such a wonderful time seeing this movie. I didn't really know what to expect, and I was trying not to be cynical going into this movie, because it's a movie based on a toy, it's a movie based on a product, and when that Mattel logo flashed on the screen before Mm -hmm. the movie started, I thought, oh no, like, did they take over? Like, was Greta able to do what she really wanted to do with this movie? And I was just so pleasantly surprised that I felt her through the entire runtime of this movie, it somehow felt like, I just really can't believe she got away with it. Really. Some of the jokes in this movie, the final line of the film. Oh my God. I just, I thought it was just this pure zap of joy that I needed. And it's the best possible version of a Barbie movie that could exist. Period. And I think what's exciting to me is that, 20, 30 years from now, I really think that filmmakers who are growing up now, right, who are kids now in high school, college, will cite this movie as a defining film for them, as a defining artistic influence. I think it's an instant classic. I really do.
1: Yeah, we've heard about the the MCU, the Mattel cinematic universe coming. We have (laughs) Polly Pocket, right? And then we have Hot Wheels and Barney
0: the Lena Dunham Polly Pocket yeah. movie. So it's, yeah, so
1: we have a lot of auteurs coming our way with these toys, and a lot was riding on Greta Gerwig making Barbie a hit, and she absolutely smashed mm-hmm. it out of the park. Like you said, like I would never have expected Greta Gerwig to make a movie about Barbie, and then this version of Barbie, and Ken, mm-hmm. and all of that world. But my God, like I smiled the whole time. My jaw hurt after the movie because I was smiling so much. And it was just such a joy. Like even some of the stupid comedy, I'll call it, that I like usually try to stay away from. I think every little bit she nailed it. Like Will Ferrell, Michael Sarah. I think even some of the supporting characters who I'm not maybe usually the highest on. I was like all in on this time. I think everyone knew their place and it was so well cast. There was just so much comedy. I think the design was spot on and the story. I think, yeah, even where maybe it gets a little on the nose, I think there's a reason for it. And I didn't dislike it at all.
0: I think that we have to start with the opening, which is an homage to 2001 Uh. A Space Odyssey.
1: It was nearly it's out so of my funny. chair clapping when this happened. Like, showing the girls and the <laughs> dolls, and she starts banging the dolls from side to side. I was like, it sent me into space, literally, like the doll. <laughs> uh, and then cut to Barbie. I was yeah. so happy.
0: It's an indication of how smart Greta Gerwig is and how she's able to blend this like high and low art or... You know, to say, like, 2001 A Space Odyssey is not too big for Barbie. Like, I'm going there and putting a reference like this in my film because to girls and to women everywhere, right, Barbie is like the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey. She is a towering alien object that changes everything. And it's just such a smart way to start the movie and to say that because in a similar way to a lot of the jokes later in the film... If you understand this joke, if you get it, and it is a risk to put these sorts of illusions into your film, but if you get it, it makes the film so much better. But yeah, I mean, to open your movie with Kubrick, to open a Barbie movie with Kubrick, (laughs) she's just starting out in the boldest way Mm -hmm. possible. And Helen Mirren, perfect narrator. (laughs) She's so good throughout the movie. There's a joke later in the movie when Barbie's crying.
1: Oh, my God. And the Helen Mirren
0: voiceover interrupts. And she says no to filmmakers. Do not cast Margot Robbie if you'd like to make this point.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, also in the beginning, I felt like we get title cards before we see 2001. And then I was hearing this like windy tornado sound. And I was like, oh, my God, is this the Wizard of Oz? Like that homage? Mm. And there are Mm -hmm. so many illusions built into this movie. It's just, it's a hug to film lovers and cinephiles where you get the pink yellow brick road from The Wizard of Oz also later on.
0: That shot of her when she's going up the stairs to weird Barbie's house Mm -hmm. is a direct callback to In the Red Shoes when she's about to go up the stairs when she's wearing that blue dress and Barbie's wearing blue in that scene too. Oh yeah. It's just fun because, like, you don't need to know that movie to go mm-hmm. into this and to appreciate the like visual splendor of it all. But if you do know it, it's fun to pick up on these things mm-hmm. and to see that Barbie is of a part of those great films of the past.
1: Yeah. And then, like, Singing in the Rain, you have all those beautifully painted backdrops and mm-hmm. sound stages where they dance. There's so much choreo in this movie. Every color pops, but they fit together so well, too. It's such a well-constructed world that there's more to see if you know it's there. But if you don't, it's also just stunning to watch on its own.
0: I completely agree. So in a similar way to what we did with Oppenheimer, I think let's just go through all of the elements that make this movie great and just break it down that way. So I think starting out with production design, Sarah Greenwood, what she does in this movie Is so beautiful. And just creating Barbie land. Making it this bright pink. And listen. I do not like pink. I do not own anything pink. There's nothing pink in my home. But I loved the production design. And how beautiful it is. And just incorporating all these different shades of pink. And having Barbie's dream house be open concept. So the Barbies can wake up and greet each other and say hello. I love the blend of the decal, because that's how children's toys are, right? So it's this blend of something that's incredibly realistic for the Barbies there. It's functional for them, but at the same time, it's not functional, because a doll's toy is not, right? The food is plastic, or the refrigerator is made up of a sticky decal. So I like how playful it is, and how it combined the looks of Barbie dream houses from the past and just made it so perfect for this film. I just thought that everything in Barbie land was absolutely glorious. The pink sand, how the waves were plastic. Mm -hmm. It was so smart in how it was constructed.
1: And then how it was shot. Rodrigo Prieto, cinematographer. We'll be talking about him again with Colors of a Flower Moon. But I think how he shoots this world, too, also plays on that doll-like plastic feeling. Like when you see Barbie, you know, there there are no walls. The mirrors are empty. When Barbie steps into the shower, there's no water. When she pours the milk, mm-hmm. there's no actual liquid. So the way you get to see in not only the houses, but just the world and how they interact. And then Barbie floats down from her room outside and just the way the camera moves and captures that it's so interesting because then when they go to los angeles and century city it feels like a normal i say normal but like a real movie at that point so there is a switch so i love the the little nuances of capturing barbie land and then like for example when they're driving away And Barbie finds Ken in the back seat and the car flips like all of that is just so cartoonish Playful, but to a point that isn't over the top I think there is a very fine line here where I think it leans in so hard that you can't fault it And I didn't want to
0: Yeah, and I love like the little animation Pieces that they add like those little touches like when the car flips and it's like those stars or the smoke it's a really nice detail that reminds you that Barbie is a toy, right? It's so outlandish, and Richard Brody brought that up in his review in the New Yorker um, too about how it feels like a fantasy. It's a it's a great work of fantasy, and it it recalls that type of Looney Tunes comedy at the same time. And I think also it does venture into camp, and that's what's going to make it a classic too for future generations.
1: Mm-hmm. I think the other part to being nervous, too, is that it's a Mattel property. You don't know how much they're controlling Mm -hmm. and how much Greta is controlling. And I read about certain instances where Mattel wanted to take out certain scenes because it looked bad on Barbie. Like when Sasha is berating Barbie and she starts crying, like they didn't want that scene in there because of how it made Barbie look. But keeping that in, keeping that artistic vision, I'm glad that Mattel leaned into it, too, Like, later on, Issa Rae's Barbie swears, and they just put the Mattel logo when she swears. So funny. Which is perfect. That is exactly what I wanted, and I'm glad that they left all of that in. And there's one other scene that we can talk about in a minute that's the best scene in the movie, uh, with the old woman, and then Rhea Perlman, which is also incredible. I think those are my two favorite moments.
0: I think when Barbie goes to the real world... Rodrigo Prieto does a great job of making L.A. look almost gloomy by comparison. It just is suddenly very, very real for Barbie and Ken. And that moment that you're talking about was the first time in the movie that I cried with the old mm-hmm. woman who is legendary costume designer Ann Roth. And she is sitting on a bench and Barbie has just gone through this crisis where you know, in Barbie land, which this part is really funny, but where she discovers she has flat feet and she has morning breath. Her shower is cold. Her food is burnt. Something is wrong. And she goes up to see weird Barbie, who's Kate McKinnon. And she tells her that she's malfunctioning and it's due to a connection between her and her owner in the real world. So she has to go to the real world to fix it. Quick note on weird Barbie Amazing. My sister and I were crazy to our Barbies. (laughs) Like, we would draw on them, we would cut their hair, and we had a few weird Barbies, I would say. Mm -hmm. And the idea that Weird Barbie was created because humans played with them a little too hard in the real world was so good. And that cutaway to the girls playing with the Barbies. Yes. And just destroying yes. them to spice up your life was so good. It was perfect. It's just such like perfect humor because I, I started laughing instantly because that's exactly what we would do to our Barbies. I don't know why, but it's just like a creative, you know, creative outlet. You just are. There's one Barbie you keep really pretty, and another Barbie you're like, I'm going to give this one a pixie cut, and you always think it's going to look like Linda Evangelista or something, but it does not.
1: (laughs) And the fact that she's always in the splits and how Kate moves around the house. Oh, it's perfect. It's so good.
0: It's so, so good. But just the little bits of humor there, like choosing between the high heel and the Mm -hmm. Birkenstock. I was wearing my Birks to this movie. It was very funny. (laughs) But yeah, so going back to, so after Barbie's had this crisis and she's in the real world and she's just taking a moment to think, that moment on the bench with that elderly woman, is just so beautiful. Like when she tells her she's beautiful and she says, I know.
1: Yeah, you have to stop and think. And those are those little Gerwig touches that really Mm. make this so special. It's that everything is fun and games and Ken is crying and Barbie wants to be somebody. And then this moment of realism and existentialism where it's like, oh, crap, this is also the real world. We are looking at a version of an actual reality. And I think that's what's so special. And when Barbie's in the Mattel building and she comes upon Ray Perlman, I didn't know who she was, but then, you know, later on in the film, we find out. And I think mm-hmm. that moment is just so beautiful and how she cares about oh, Barbie yeah. and kind of seeing Margo wear less and less makeup throughout the movie and realizing who she is and being one with her emotions. There's just such a raw, natural beauty to all of that that I just totally Mm -hmm. loved. And I think the tears came easier and easier as the movie went on because of those moments of authenticity and vulnerability from the characters and the filmmakers.
0: I completely agree. I feel like the script does such a great job of finding the fine line between over-the-top comedy and sincerity. And that's Really hard to do. I think it would be easy to feel tonal whiplash from a movie that was trying to do what this movie is doing, maybe in another director or writer's hands. But it just works. I was pretty amazed by how well it works from going from laughing hysterically at certain parts to welling up and thinking about my mom and other parts. It just, it somehow all comes together, and I think the tone of it really is just, it is this deep understanding of girlhood that Greta Gerwig gets so well. And I think, you know, it's it's not like only girls or women can enjoy this movie, that's not it. But it's just, she understands, I think, that rare combination of, like, silliness and sadness that really like is a part of your life at a particular age and it's also it's a part of your life when you're at that age when you're playing with Barbies so she understands something deeper I think about the human experience and translates that onto the screen and it's just it's so beautiful how she does it I have no idea and I know I'm like not giving Noah any credit I should give Noah some credit for this since he's a co-writer but it does just feel it's I think it's it's pretty amazing what what they both do here and how she I don't know. I think the comedy for me in the movie just is is so so good because it's again like the references that are used after going to the real world and going back to Barbieland and they realize that the Kens have taken over mm-hmm. and created the Kendom and all the Barbies need to take it back and there's this entire montage of the barbies trying to trick the kens and get the barbies back on their side the jokes that are used here they're so relevant today to just things that we've things we've experienced in the world the Zack snyder cut of justice league i screamed the godfather joke is the best Godfather joke we've ever gotten. The like the line about Coppola's aesthetic and Robert Evans. Like, of course, that's great. But then when Issa Rae adds the, you know, if you could just start it over and talk through the entire thing, <laughs> <laughs> the funniest scene in the movie to me is how Ken becomes obsessed with Matchbox Twenty, specifically the song "Push," mm-hmm. and he starts playing it to Barbie. And then the camera pans out and shows that all of the Kens are singing it to the Barbies. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny because it shows like the silliness of some of the things that some of the stereotypical interests of men, but also it just, it does it in such, I don't know, it's such a funny way where sometimes when I watch Greta Gerwig movies, I just think we have the same sense of humor or we have the same references, but you're just putting it together in a way that I never would have thought of before. That's part of the fun of watching one of her
1: movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the scene we mentioned before with Anne Roth, she goes, yeah, you're beautiful. And she says, I know. And there's this moment of silence. And then Ken comes rushing up, talking about the patriarchy and horses. And it's like, there's such a shift. But like she knows exactly what she's doing with all of the characters, with the tone, and with the commentary, the social commentary. It's so smart. Mm -hmm. And I think all of the Ken parts too like I cried through the Ann Ross scene I cried through the Rhea Pearlman scene at the end I cried when they showed like the real moms the montage of the real moms uh-huh. lost it mm-hmm. but then even when Ken is breaking down and Ken's like who am I without Barbie and Barbie's like you got to be mm-hmm. your own person I don't like you like go do your own thing and it was like even that is something that you can connect to and she she made a point to give everybody a heart and emotions which I think was really important for this movie and maybe not something another director would have done necessarily.
0: Yeah, with the Kens, it's almost like Greta Gerwig, she is thinking about the identity of Barbie and Barbie's place in the culture and everything like that and what she has done or not done for feminism, but She's also thinking a lot about Ken. And it's interesting that she seems to have this curiosity around what he is based on, and how, even in a matriarchy like Barbie Land, the seeds of the patriarchy, right, are still with the Kens. He has a perfect body. He, you know, acts in a certain way. He's interested in certain things. And those are. Things that appeal to consumers, right? Like that. And she's interested in that too. So it's, you can see like how she's, again, like thinking about it more deeply and showing that, you know, for a man who even, yes, he's a doll, but for, for a man who doesn't have a place in the world, who feels secondary, who doesn't have an identity, how much more likely is someone like that going to turn to A structure like the patriarchy that's going to give him something, right? That's going to prop him up or tell him he's great or give him this sense of community. Like, you start to understand, like, how those men come to be. And the difference, too, between Barbie Land and Kendom and how, like, for the Kens and for the patriarchy, the Barbies are subservient. Like, they are taking care of the Kens. They are secondary. The Kens want to rule everything. And in Barbie land, they're just there, right? Like the Barbies aren't putting them down. They're just, they don't know where they live. And I feel like it's, it's such an interesting discussion of that without being preachy Mm. at all. It's just more of a conversation, I think, and an interrogation of those sorts of ideas, which I really appreciated. And the feminism in the movie, like, yes, I know people are saying that Or thinking that America Ferreira's monologue is like Feminism 101. But in the movie, she's teaching it to a Barbie. Like, what do you expect? She's not going to get into theory and anything Mm. really deeper. I think that for, for the purposes of this film and for where it fits in the story, that really works. Like, she has to put it in the simplest terms possible. Just explaining why she's so tired why women are expected to be extraordinary and to carry the world on their backs and not get any of the credit. And I think it's like, yes, it's it's conversation that's been going on for a really long time and it's nothing new, but it's new to the characters in the story, right? Mm-hmm. It's new to the Barbies and that's its function narratively. So in that, I think that speech also felt like Yes, it partially felt like Laura Dern's bit in Marriage Story, I think. So you can feel a little bit of back influence there. But that was another, another Greta moment entirely. It reminded me a lot of when Joe is talking to Marmee in Little Women. And she's talking about her independence and, you know, why she is the way she is. And she ends with, but I'm just so lonely. Like, that, it feels so similar to that, I think. And she just, I don't know, she just, she gets it. She always makes me cry. The one thing I will say with the script, I didn't need necessarily the Will Ferrell scenes. Anything with Mattel headquarters, I just didn't need that as much. I felt like the point was proven kind of quickly. Like, okay, these men who work at Mattel, like they make all of the decisions that affect a market that they do not understand. Like, they're making all these decisions for their primary consumers who are women and girls. Like, that doesn't make sense. But I feel like it was kind of belabored at times, like when they appeared in Barbie Land at the end, I was like, oh, I had almost forgotten about you. What is your real purpose being here? Kind of. I almost felt like we could have done without them, but I did love that it meant that we got to meet Gloria, the America Ferrera character who Barbie is connected with, mm-hmm. and I thought she was great in the movie. I really, really liked her, and it was good to see her, her again.
1: I thought America was phenomenal. I just kept thinking about her in Superstore the whole time the last time I've really uh-huh. seen her and at one point she said sisterhood and I could only think of the sisterhood of the traveling pants after she said that
0: oh my god so I don't know if
1: that was an intentional mm-hmm. nod it probably was
0: she also included a little a line at the end from the Disney Channel original movie gotta kick it up <laughs> starring America Ferreira so That's Greta Gerwig her references run deep yeah <laughs> But I clocked it right away. I was like, oh my god, you know. You get it.
1: (laughs) But yeah, I mean, when she's drawing those sad Barbies and they realize what's happening and then she has Barbie jump in the car, I felt like she did an amazing job at like a real world Barbie, injecting humanity into this doll-like figure, this perfectionist ideal. You know, as Margot is portraying stereotypical Barbie in what... You expect Barbies to look like and act like and think like America, along with all the other Barbies. I loved Issa Ray.
0: Issa Ray was perfect as President Barbie.
1: Just the first <laughs> glance of her with that sash, I was like, she was meant to be President Barbie. And then you have Emma Mackey and Hari Neff and Sharon Rooney, all of these other Barbies that I don't know, made the world so magical and you get little snippets of Emerald Fenella's Midge, and I don't know any of this <laughs> so world, funny. but yeah, like even the nods yeah. to discontinued Barbies was mm-hmm. so smart of them to do that.
0: And Alan, we have to you mention know, yes. Alan. This was the first time I've ever like truly loved Michael Sarah and anything, so that was a win. <laughs>
1: And it's a different kind of Michael Sarah than like Superbad or anything we've really seen from Mm -hmm. him before. He played into the camp too. And this like other character in this world who feels like an outcast, even in a world of Kens Mm -hmm. and Barbies.
0: Yeah. And with all the Barbies too, Jacqueline Duran, her costume design, Mm
1: -hmm. incredible.
0: Like you mentioned with the discontinued Barbies, recreating those costumes recreating barbie's outfits like yes what she wears in the movie is fantastic but also when ken is throwing out oh, her outfits from the dream house and america Ferrera is like that's archival <laughs> yes. and they're like flashing the different outfits in front of us to let us know what mm-hmm. collection it's from for the barbie so good so so smart
1: and then the music the movie starts with Lizzo's Pink. And then it moves into Dua Lipa's Dance the Night. I feel like we just get bops on bops. And it's not overwhelming. I mean, we knew the soundtrack was coming and all of these huge performers getting a name on this soundtrack. But I can't believe I'm saying this, but maybe my favorite needle drop was Billie Eilish's song at the very end, like -hmm. this very somber emotional moment that really worked on me.
0: That moment is just so emotional, and I feel like the soundtrack, Lizzo with Pink opening it was great, and I love how that song plays again with another version of it when Barbie has her bad morning. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I think that the um, Billie Eilish song, What Was I Made For, oh, the way that that plays in the film, just tears and over that montage of the real women who were involved in making this film, right? Like those are crew members, like their home videos. And the fact that Greta even thought to put that in to this movie is just like, it shows again, just like the connections like between women, but also like through history and their connections with this doll and how it's all, you know, more than that. But yeah, I thought the song was really good. And the way it was used in the movie in this sort of dreamlike heavenly state as she's thinking about what it means to be a human instead of being a doll was just really well done. And we also have to mention I'm Just Ken, Ken's 80s power Mm -hmm. ballad, triple threat Ryan Gosling with his comedic timing and commitment in this performance that we'll talk about shortly. But I think the use of music here really showed me also that Greta Gerwig is fascinated by Hollywood musicals, and should make one of her own.
1: I mean, we just got Narnia, so maybe she can turn that into a musical, (laughs) since she's scared, and obviously not scared by musicals. I thought the choreo to the Ken song was phenomenal, and I loved Ryan Gosling. He went there too. I need to go back and watch The Nice Guys, apparently, because he's a comedy genius there, but I think from like his vest and yeah how ripped his chest was and how silly he was. I mean like when Barbie comes over Mm -hmm. and asks him out he fumbles around trying to find a book and he's like oh yeah you just caught me I was reading. It's just so (laughs) dumb but it's so funny.
0: I love whenever Ken is in the real world. Oh my god. Ryan Gosling is so good in those scenes. Mm -hmm. Like when he's watching the montage of, like, the golfers and the CEOs and Sylvester Stallone in the fur. And he's just awestruck and needs to learn more about the patriarchy. It's so funny, but so scary at the same mm-hmm. time. It really, really works. And when he goes, you know, to the school and is like, I need to read about trucks. Or when he goes and he is talking to that doctor and wants to perform an appendectomy it is so silly but so funny and he's so good in this, those scenes and I understand why he is the performance people are singling out mm-hmm. but I really loved Margot Robbie in this movie I thought she was amazing this is her best I think her best performance to date And she's worked with, you know, a number of great directors. She was in Babylon. She was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Wolf of Wall Street. But here, this role is so tricky because it's so strange. It's so silly. But there's a layer of earnestness and sincerity to it. And I think she balances it so beautifully.
1: Yeah, I think for Barbie, you do need someone who is just absolutely stunning Margot's also able to turn that on its head and to kind of play with that concept. And that was really important because Margot Robbie is a star. We love her in all these movies, like thinking that she's worked with Tarantino, Scorsese, Chazelle, all of these masters. And I think she really surprised me with going from really smiley to crying back and forth the entire movie and being able to lead it amongst a cast that is... Like Oppenheimer, just a knockout A-list cast.
0: Yeah, I think the supporting performances too. I mean, everyone is just wonderful. Issa Rae, America Ferrera, Michael Sarah.
1: So finishing with Greta Gerwig, her direction. I don't know what else there is more to say. We're I know kind of just loving on her this entire episode as she deserves. I think looking at her past works, she did the same thing that Nolan did, where. She drew from everything. And while it's not as many films, I think they're just as notable and memorable that this feels both grand and small. And we're at a point now where this is number four, and we can totally trust her with anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, normally when a director who I love, you know, steps away and does something in the MCU or takes on an IP or something like that, it makes me. And then I see the product and what that looks like, you know, I'm thinking of like Chloe Zhao for Mm -hmm. Eternals, for instance, I start to lose some faith because you see, you know, how much studio influence there was or, but here it was the complete opposite of that. Like this movie made me excited to see anything that Greta Gerwig wants to make in the future. It made me just so like confident and inspired in her as a director And yeah, I'm just I'm so excited to see what she does next. I think this is a really, really well directed film.
1: And how do you feel about Oscar potential?
0: It's interesting. I actually like I don't want to doubt this movie at all. I think that it can do potentially really great things with awards this season. We saw last year like I doubted everything everywhere all at once for so long because that was you know, not what the Academy likes quote unquote, but it actually was. And I think that for Barbie if this movie this movie is a smash hit it's breaking records and it's doing really well and it's connecting with critics and with audiences i feel like it could potentially do really well i think like things like production design costume design the crafts like that seems really possible and i think too it'll be interesting to see depending on what happens with the strike and with other movies being released or delayed like this movie could I mean I think I think it could be a big deal. I really, really hope though. I really hope that Margot Robbie gets into Best Actress. This would be her best nomination in her career. And <laughs> it's such a weird performance.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: obviously I hope Ryan Gosling gets into because what a weird comedic performance too and they don't recognize comedy enough. But yeah, I would love for love for both of them. And of course, like, Greta's been nominated before, so there's potential there with screenplay and with direction, too. So I'm not going to write this one off, even though on paper it doesn't seem like one that the Academy could go for, like Oppenheimer.
1: I definitely feel less sure about acting, but I do think, I mean, I was comparing it to Everything Everywhere as well, where if this movie sticks around, we could be looking at a Best Picture, I would say, win. Oh my god. I would love to see Barbie... (laughs) be this cultural phenomenon just like that was last year and i mean we had such a push for michelle too and all of those went over so well so if we could see greta up there this movie i would be so happy and we already got an hbo max release date for september so like it's gonna be in the air for quite a while And I think people are going to be watching this at home all the time. This is a perfect background movie if you've seen it like seven times. (laughs) Put it on, leave it on. It's great. Again,
0: I cannot tell you how many times I'm going to watch this movie. (laughs) It just does feel like something you just put on and you don't know what else you want to watch. Or again, like I know I've talked about this before too, but it just makes me so excited thinking about the generations who are going to have this be their sleepover movie. In a way that Mm -hmm. like Bring It On or Josie and the Pussycats or any of those movies were for me. This is going to be that and it's so smart at the same time. So it's just, I don't know. It's exciting to think about. It's potential. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Would it be Best Picture? Like you just said it could?
1: I mean, not no. I think (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket. I would say Picture. (laughs) I love it. I think production design is maybe, like, number two, but I have to give it to Greta. She deserved it for Lady Bird. I still think about that movie all the time, and I think what she did here, she just blew me away, she blew audiences away, and like we're saying, it's just one to return to over and over. Like, I cannot wait to get back to the movies and to see this again. It's just such... A fun experience. It's something that I would have never expected. And everyone finally gets to play with Barbies. It's great. Yes,
0: it's great. I would do the same thing. You know, as much as I love the performances and the crafts, I think I would give Best Director to Greta Gerwig. I just feel like what she was able to accomplish with this movie in keeping it her own and in creating what I think will be just an instant classic for generations to come. It's just so exciting to me. Like, that's why I love movies. It reminded me why I love movies. And just, again, I think it has the best final line to any movie since Eyes Wide Shut. (laughs) So that's a win for her. I know we said we're going to spoil it, but just in case people are still listening, I don't want to spoil that. So if you haven't seen Barbie yet, go see it. The final line is impeccable. But... Yeah, I think, you know, just thinking of how she chose to end a Barbie movie with this scene between Rhea Perlman, who's also so fantastic in this movie, like an underrated performance too, between her as Ruth Handler and Barbie talking about mothers and daughters and life and death and and what it means to be human. That is just such an audacious way to Mm. end a movie that you think is going to be this light romp about a toy. I've never seen anything like it before.
1: Okay, so before we finish, we have to play. It has been way too long. It's
0: been a really, really long time. So for our listeners, if you just want to hear our reviews of the movies, that is completely fine. We are about to venture into
1: the campy world of
0: unhinged (laughs) territory with Smasher Pass Barbenheimer Edition.
1: Let's start out on an easy note. We're going with our main Ken, Ryan Gosling.
0: So I think there are some areas of concern here, certainly. He is not emotionally well-adjusted or anything like that. He's a little too into horses and brewskis, as he would say. But I would definitely let him sing Matchbox 20 to me. This is a smash, easily. He's going to be an awakening for many people watching this movie. Mm -hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. I guess in the same vein, I don't see horses as a problem, so I'm gonna say smash. There is a lot to love here, and like I kind of wish we got more, but it's also our PG thirteen version of Ken, so I'm I'm very happy. Yeah. I mean, it's there was a line about I think it was Weird Barbie who talks about the the genitals. I know what I you're saying. It was like, yep. oh my god, just spot on.
0: <laughs> he also says, "I'm just Ken and I'm enough, and I'm great at doing stuff." <laughs> so next we have Leslie Groves played by Matt Damon. So, yes, we're going to be alternating here. There are more men in Oppenheimer to go with, but we're going to be switching back and forth.
1: <sighs> oh, boy. Um, this is very tricky because I think for his character, I would err on saying pass. But Matt Damon is like s- kind of lovable in a weird way in like this militaristic, playful way. It's kind of weird, but I love what he's doing with it. Mm, I'm so tempted to say smash. Do it. <laughs> Are you? Should I even it out? Uh, I'll say pass.
0: I'm going to say pass as well. The military energy does yeah. nothing for me. It's actually a negative, so I'm going to say yeah. pass.
1: i feel that. And now we have Michael Sarah as Alan.
0: Oh, I love Alan, but I do have to pass. He... He also just would be a great friend. Like, I can see Alan being a dear friend to me, but not a smash.
1: Sorry. Sorry, Alan. You're forever an Alan <laughs> alone. I'm going to say pass.
0: Oh. <laughs> okay, next we have Niels Bohr, played by Kenneth Branagh.
1: Jump scare. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, part of me wishes he ate that cyanide apple, but it's also Niels Bohr, who is so <laughs> born to science. Sorry, Pass.
0: Kenneth Branagh is always a pass for me besides when he played Benedict in Much Do About Nothing, so I'm gonna also say pass here. When he appeared at that Christmas party, yeah, jump scare. No thanks.
1: Okay, now we have Simu Liu as Ken.
0: Well, I wouldn't want to offend Ryan Gosling's Ken. Mm -hmm. That's the hard part, because I know he would get jealous, because that's what he does. And I don't love Simu Liu.
1: I don't know if there's a single Ken that I'm not smashing on this list. When Simu's tank like goes to the side, I was like, Ugh, why aren't all the Ken shirtless? So yeah, that's a smash for this one.
0: Next we have Robert Downey Jr. as Louis Strauss.
1: Absolute pass. He is such a villain to Oppenheimer. Oh mm. my god. Just the turns that this character goes through in that second act blew me away. Did not expect it. I mean, in the beginning, you get it a little bit, but mm -mm. no, thank you.
0: Pass for me. He's very vindictive. He also looks so much like my dad. They're doppelgangers. (laughs) You've seen my Mm -hmm. dad before. They look a lot alike. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a pass.
1: (laughs) This is my favorite RDJ performance, though, I think. He's so good. Definitely. Okay, now John Cena as Mermaid Ken. Merman Ken. (laughs)
0: I'm going to say smash. Oh John Cena is really funny and I also just would want to know what was what was happening. So, I would I would say smash.
1: This is probably my least favorite part of this movie. I just it's not for me. I don't know who it's for, but sorry, I have to pass here.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm going to try not to butcher this, but next we have Heisenberg played by Matthias Schweighofer.
1: So, if I was in a room together with Heisenberg and Oppenheimer, there would be so many explosions happening. <laughs> when I saw this character, oh no. we got like two shots of this character, and he is adorable. I have to say, smash.
0: He is very hot. I don't love blondes I though. I figured he's also a Nazi, so I have to say pass.
1: <laughs> we were not looking at that point. That this was just a visual.
0: You're looking early. You're thinking early in the yes. movie when they first meet exactly. before the war. Okay, gotcha. <laughs>
1: Okay, now we have Kingsley Benadire as Ken.
0: Number one smash for me from the Barbie world. Easily first. I thought he was also great in this movie. Aside from just being hot, like wearing shorts that are the appropriate 70s short length. Great. Um, yeah, I thought he was funny. Easy smash.
1: I think he might be my favorite. Ugh, it's so hard to say Ryan Gosling, not Ryan Gosling, but he might be my favorite Ken mm. just from like seeing him lean in. There was just something about him that there was like this extra glimmer. He's also very cute, but he gave Ken this like extra spunk. I really have to say smash here. I wanted that entire outfit. The tank and the shorts.
0: The outfit was great. Next, we have Ernest Lawrence played by Josh Hartnett.
1: Oh, the comeback of Josh. Oh, absolute smash.
0: So this is the easiest smash for me on the Oppenheimer side of things. He, for me, in this movie, was giving, if Adam Driver were conventionally hot, mm-hmm. like, they have a very similar, like, body type to me in this movie. I was like, oh, he's he's larger than I remembered. I had great taste when I was 15, apparently, still. Like, this is, you know, I'm so happy he's back. But he's also, yeah, he's a smart, hot scientist. Smash.
1: Okay, now Will Farrell as Mattel CEO
0: absolute pass
1: this is just an immediate pass I no notes
0: (laughs) next we have Albert Einstein played by Tom Conti.
1: I want him to be my grandpa and that's it I'm passing but he's adorable as Einstein he's spot on I I loved it
0: yeah this is a pass for me I love him in this I think it's uncanny how much he looks like Einstein but yeah I would want to just like I don't know Go out to dinner with him. Go to a movie.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He seems so great. Like a great grandpa.
1: Okay, now Alden Ehrenreich, who plays the Senate aide to Strauss.
0: Easy smash. He's also kind of like the only morally good person in mm-hmm. the movie. Just like if we're thinking in black and white terms. And like he goes up against against mm-hmm. Strauss in a great way and calls him out on his narcissism. And he looks great in a suit, too. Smash.
1: Yeah, I would say Smash. I feel like he's a little bit more subtle than a lot of the other characters, but I kind of like that.
0: Okay, and last up, the best for last, we have J. Robert Oppenheimer, played by Killian Murphy.
1: When he's sitting cross-legged naked in the chair, I feel like it opened up a whole new can of worms. I was like, I'm into an entirely different type of man now. Wow. (laughs) The gray hairs... Very chest (laughs) oh my god this was this is a smash
0: yeah so in that scene in particular i have to say i was expecting and hoping for more nudity (laughs) from him and you know i thought we might get more but that's okay
1: him in imax that would have been
0: yeah that would be a case for all films to be (laughs) shot in 70 millimeter imax but would people have been okay? I don't, I don't know. I think so. <laughs> it might have been too much for the world.
1: <laughs> Would have destroyed the world in other ways.
0: Mm-hmm. The atomic bomb of our time. Yeah, you know, also, he's a little thin for me. There's a really great, like, weird sex scene in this movie when he's in the trial room. Oh, yeah. In the trial room. And we get the shot, and his shoulders look <laughs> so bony. <laughs> so pale and freckly and bony. Well... Where I was like, wow, you know, yeah, I would choose Josh Hartnett Mm. instead. But yeah, there's something about him that just like I shouldn't be drawn to, but I totally would be. And like, yes, I know he's a womanizer and everything like that. But there's a reason why the women keep coming back to him, you know?
1: Well, Killian had to lose weight for the role. So if -hmm. that does anything for you to know that he's usually not that skinny.
0: No, I know. It's a lot. (laughs) I'm, I'm thinking about a lot right now. That I can't effectively communicate. But yeah, no, it's oh it's a gosh. definite smash. Like as Oppenheimer, as Killian Murphy. <laughs> just period. <laughs> and like not to not to be this way, but when there was a part of me, the way that he delivered that line, the famous line, I was like it was a hot mm-hmm. moment for me. Like I don't I personally would not like need him to read Sanskrit to me. Like I don't I don't need that. But it is an intriguing idea. When you think of maybe some other books that he could he could read instead, <laughs> I don't know. I think he also no. I don't need to. I don't need to say this on the air.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, with that, <laughs> that's masher pass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> we'll definitely have more coming.
0: Oh God.
1: Yeah, this was an incredible recap of Barbie and Oppenheimer. Out in theaters now. See them in theaters. Do not wait until it's playing at home streaming the sound quality in theaters is phenomenal and obviously the the picture quality see it in IMAX if you can see it in 70 millimeter if you can Oppenheimer of course and Barbie is playing in theaters also in Dolby which was a great experience too
0: yeah that, this was such a fun recap i think we did the best movies of the summer so far justice in really diving into them and of course capping it all off with smasher pass I had so much fun seeing both of these movies, just to echo you, like, go see these movies in theaters, go support both of them, and they're really great, and let us know what you think of them. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be celebrating the great filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, and we will be reviewing two of his films, My Neighbor Totoro, which is one of my favorites, and also Spirited Away, which is his biggest movie in terms of, you know, success and awards so far to celebrate his upcoming new film, The Boy and the Heron, which came out in Japan recently.
1: I cannot wait for his new and potentially last film. I'm already trying to stay away from it, but reading some of those early reviews from people in Japan who have seen it, I'm so excited. And these are two classics. I mean, all of his films are incredible, but I'm excited to talk about these two movies. Thank you all for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod and bonus content at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde.
0: Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.